Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solution Center L3C. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. We're excited that you joined us for our final part of the series in the back to school month. And I'm here today with Dr. Lisa Calvente. She is an assistant professor in the College of Communications at DePaul University. So we're really excited to get to talk to Dr. Calvente. Um, we're going to talk about what you do at DePaul, but we're going to start with your background a little bit. So tell me about where you grew up and what life was like for you as a young person. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. It was just my mother and I. My father died when I was about five years old. Um, So I was in a single parent household. We were very poor. I grew up during a time where most communities of color, if not all communities of color in the city, well, at least in the boroughs, were isolated from a lot of access, right? So I grew up during the Reagan era, which, you know, made things even more difficult as a poor child growing up in an urban space. Yeah, and so obviously growing up in New York City, very different than Chicago, maybe a little uh, rivalry there, but that's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What did you notice about growing up in New York that is a little different than uh, here in Chicago that people may not really realize about New York? that was different in New York. I don't think it was different at all, right? So especially when, so figure when you live in an urban space and you live in a working class segregated community, and I say segregated because spatially, even though, you know, we're not, we're allowed to take the train and we could go wherever we feel like it, Jim Crow is over, right? And Jim Crow never affected the urban space, especially northern urban space, people typically were segregated because of how the city ran, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So how the infrastructure actually spatially divided communities. So in that sense, we weren't different, right, than segregated spaces in Chicago, than the south side or southwest side or west side of Chicago. So a lot of these spaces ran independent of, you know, New York City. I think that was the similarity. But of course, when you're growing up, you don't think about that, right? Your world is the actual community that you live in. Tell me about um, having a single parent family. Um, They always say it takes a village to raise a child. And I assume there were other people who came alongside your mother and and sort of helped with that. But what was it like for you to not only have a single parent household, but to have, I guess, who were the other people that were also helping you? I would say, you know, uh, my family, right? I come from a very large Puerto Rican family, originally from Spanish Harlem, going back generations. And when my father passed, they were the ones who stepped in and helped me. I was raised Catholic, so my godparents played a major role in my life. Other family members stepped up. My mom's friends stepped up. I stayed with them a lot. 
while my mom worked. My mom worked in a sweatshop for most of my childhood, right? So she sewed pieces at a sweatshop. She first started learning to sew on 125th Street in Harlem. So my grandmother, who also sewed when she came from San Juan, Puerto Rico. She brought my mom to this sweatshop and had her learn how to sew pieces mm. when she came to this country in 1972. Wow. When my mom came to this country. So yeah. then she sewed in sweatshops until, wow, I think until I was a teenager. And then she got a job at the fashion district as a sample hand. So then she had a legit job and joined the union. I'm sure you had to learn a lot about work ethic from her. Yes. I mean, you know, my mom worked, she worked about 12 hours a day, seven days a week, right? And on the weekend, I would go with her to the sweatshop if family didn't take care of me. So I I wouldn't go every weekend, but a lot of Saturdays and Sundays I spent, you know, in a factory. (laughs) That's crazy, but it's It's crazy, right? Yeah, it's such a different experience. So you're from New York. We got to ask you about pizza because it's one of the things we got to (laughs) know. Did you have a Did you have a go to pizza place out there? Da Vinci's Pizza in Bensonhurst. All right. Well, there you go. If you're going to New York City, Da Vinci's. You take the end train to 18th Avenue, and then you walk about two and a half blocks. And Da Vinci's Pizza is right there on 18th Avenue between 65th Street and 67th Street. <laughs> that's I'm how do- I know. I'm doing a commercial. No, that's right? how I know you're. That's <laughs> free like, advertising. You got a pizza place. Yeah, you're I got like, a pizza place. I, you can vision, envision yourself oh, yes. walking there and mm-hmm. standing in line. That's great. I ate their pizza when I was a kid. I think at the time the pizza was. I sound like a really old person. At the time, <laughs> the pizza was about 75 cents, and now it's. I think two something. Imagine a 75 cent slice of pizza. That sounds really good right now. (laughs) We're doing this way too close to lunchtime. (laughs) I got to ask you about college because a lot of kids in that situation may not feel like college is in their future. And so as you're going through school, was that something for you that was like you thought that it would actually happen? No. That, that's the short answer. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't think it would happen. I did not think about my future as an academic until way later in my life. When I was in high school, I was always very smart. But I think like a lot of children who don't have access to particular programs, who don't have mentorship support, who do come from marginalized communities, it's very difficult for them to see a future, right? Especially in education, when those who are in education are the ones who are actively working against them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I spent a lot of my time in school while I was younger, again, even though I was very smart, trying to figure out why I was being targeted by teachers, right? Um, As if I was a bad child, even though I had the grade to demonstrate that I was just as good as any other child. By the time I got to high school, I was 
already very critical of education and teachers, right? Um, And I was critical of education because I believe that, you know, it wasn't there for me, right? So the subjects that I was learning um, did not highlight my experience, who I was. Mm. Um, The images that I saw Right. So I remember being in in school and seeing, you know, the pictures, they would post the pictures of the presidents and, you know, you look at them and you're like, well, I'm I'm not a man and I'm not white. Right. right? Right. So that didn't reinforce my own sense of self, my own sense of being. Right. Um, So and then I had teachers that honestly, I think I would have been better off if they ignored me. But instead, because I was a child of color and a young girl, um, I was under heightened surveillance, Mm -hmm. right? So I was accused of doing things that I didn't do, um, was suspended at an early age. And of course, this is a phenomenon with young girls of color in urban spaces. They get suspended at a faster rate than their male counterparts, even boys of color. So yeah, by the time I went to high school, my grades went down and I was a street kid. I hung out, you know, on the streets like a lot of other kids. Um, And that was normal for me, right? So it was nothing that my mother did. My mother was, you know, by my own accounts, even now was a very good mother, very strict. You know, how many punishments can you punish a child, right? How many times can you punish a child? And it didn't matter to me because I was so affected by the institution itself that I really didn't feel like I belonged. And I remember I was in... I think it was my sophomore year of high school and I was you know I was smart enough not to fail classes right but I didn't get great grades I think my average was like a 67 and I was cutting class and I was sitting with this young this girl in my class she was in my English class and she had free and I just didn't go to class And I asked her why she worked hard in school. She was another kid of color. And she said that she wanted to prove to everyone that thought that she wasn't smart, that she was actually smart. Mm -hmm. And I just looked at her and I thought for a second, I was like, you know what? That's a good idea, right? I was like, I'm gonna go to class this next period and I'm gonna do the same thing you're doing. And let's see, right? Let's see how this strategy works, right? Instead Mm -hmm. of proving them right, I'm going to prove them wrong. So the next period I went to class and that quarter, my GPA, my average went from 67 to a 93. Wow. Right, so then I was on the honor roll I just changed, right, my perspective. And then 
what I noticed was the teacher's perspectives changed, mm-hmm. right? Now my behavior didn't change. So I still hung out. I still hung out hung <laughs> out on the corner. I still did whatever, you know, other kids I felt other kids were doing. But my grades changed. Yeah. Right. So then when I graduated high school, I graduated, you know, with honors, um, awards. And then I went to college. Um, I don't want to gloss over your time uh, getting your your PhD. So tell me about, uh, selfishly, I'm a big UNC fan. And I saw oh. that you went to went Chapel to Hill mm-hmm. for, <laughs> for school. So, um, so I want you to tell us a little bit about um, your time uh, going to the University of North Carolina and getting your, your master's and your PhD there and what that was like for you. Wow. When I went to grad school, I was coming from Brooklyn, right? And again, right, I grew up with hip hop. So, and this is pretty much very normal, um, especially at the time that I was growing up. Um, I really had two paths ahead of me. Um, One was towards the music industry, doing um, promotions in hip hop nights, nightclubs in the city, and also doing some um, other work with uh, Universal on the side and still going to classes and doing my, you know, academic work. And I was applying to part of those programs was um, part of the requirement was that you applied to graduate school, that you were, you know, intent on going Mm. to um, a PhD program. So, you know, I really had two paths. I was like, you know, do I want to do music, right? And stay in New York, do the hip hop thing. Um, you know, behind the scenes, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> or, um, you know, do I want to go to grad school, meet other, you know, women and students of color and join, I really believe this, and join a revolutionary think tank, right? Um, and so, you know, I was... I chose, right? I chose the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, I never found the revolutionary think tank. <laughs> <laughs> I did find very brilliant, close friends along the way. Um, so bits and pieces of a revolutionary think tank, but not, you know, an actual revolutionary think tank. Um and yeah i went to unc now i had gone to a program it was i applied to a summer program it was called the summer pre-graduate research experience um and now it's called i think the more undergraduate research something murap at UNC. So what they did was they got, I would say about 15 students of color, um, 
well, now it's minority students, right? Mm -hmm. So it's no longer just students of color. So you can apply to, let's say, math or science and be, you know, an underrepresented group and you could get in as well. So okay. I did this program and I was like, you know, UNC is just so beautiful, yeah. right? Chapel Hill is beautiful. Yeah. And they did it in the summer and they ran all their minority programs in the summer. So I'm looking around, I'm like, no, <laughs> this is just like New York, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. all these people, all these urban kids of color. I had a blast. It was 10 weeks. Um, and so, you know, what they also did was try to rec recruit you to grad school. And, you know, I, I said I was going to apply. I met uh, my mentor, who's D. Soyeni Madison, um, who's now at Northwestern in performance. I think I believe she's retired now. And she was at UNC. She was not my mentor, but she was someone else's mentor. He introduced me to her, and I said I was going to apply to grad school. Not not it was my junior year. I said not the next year. But the year after, what I was going to do at the time, I think the program was for juniors, but I might have been a senior at the time. I, I took five years in undergrad um, because I had five years worth of funding. And at the time, you know, education was cheaper. So CUNY was about... I don't know, I think it was like three, less than $3,000 a semester. So TAP and Pell covered yeah. my um, undergraduate studies, but I also had these fellowships, right? So I was actually making money as an undergrad and doing all kinds of things, traveling, like I said. Um, so I stayed, I stayed the extra year, right? So I was like, okay, I could stay here. You gotta give me five <laughs> years. I'm not gonna graduate. I'm going to take another major, right? Yeah. And that's what I did. So I knew I was gonna go to UNC because I went to this program. I met Soyeni Madison and I was like, I'm gonna work with her. Now, she, I, she didn't do what I wanted to do. I wanted to do hip hop. Um, she did performance and performance ethnography, but I also wanted to study racism, race, the black diaspora. And so it was a good fit in that mm -hmm. sense. So I went to UNC. Now remember, I went during the summer, so I'm thinking that this is just like Brooklyn, right? And then I come in August, and the first thing I think is like, oh my goodness, this is where all the blonde people are. <laughs> <laughs> so I've never seen that many tall, blonde people in my life, yeah. right? Yeah. And I mean, the women are towering over me. They're like bigger bones, but you know, and I'm like used to smaller <laughs> women. <laughs> Is smaller women from the islands, you know? So I'm like, what? Where am I, right? And gone are all these, you know, kids of color that I saw in the summer, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
So that was that was a shock to me. And being at UNC for all that time was a difficult adjustment, yeah. right? I remember going out with um, grad students and, you know, um, somebody was talking to me, some guy was talking to me at while we were out and he was like, you know, I've never met someone who who's Puerto Rican, mm. right? It's like, do you speak Puerto Rican? And I was like, no, <laughs> like nobody really speaks Puerto Rican. <laughs> like, we speak Spanish. Right. But that's how far removed, right, at the time, really Latinos were in North Carolina, right? So they've just started to get... Um, uh, kind of Spanish-speaking migrant community, immigrant community, right? Um, so it was typically like you were either black or you were white, mm-hmm. right? So that too was very difficult. I was also a vegetarian at the time, right? So a vegetarian in the South was not easy. (laughs) So things are very different when I went to UNC. Um, But the experience, the program, I went to uh, the communication department at UNC Chapel Hill. And the intellectual rigor of that cultural studies concentration, cultural studies performance concentration, was just extraordinary, Mm. right? Unlike how many PhD programs work um, today, newer PhD programs, what was going on at UNC was really, at the time, was really about the work, right? They really wanted their grad students to be critical thinkers and practitioners, Mm. um, as opposed to focusing on professionalism, right? So for them, the content, the scholarship, the intellectual rigor would actually speak for itself, right? So that was the package, not mm. what the package looked like. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was it was both a trying experience but an extraordinary experience. Yeah. Let's talk for a minute about supporting educators because they have a very difficult job and not always a lot of resources to do that. So for people who want to support educators, for people who want to know what life is like for educators, what would you say to them, like someone who doesn't, maybe someone who works in an office or who works in finance or, you know, just in another field, what would you say life is like for educators right now that maybe more is more difficult just so that we understand, you know, what teachers are trying to do in their schools and in their classrooms? I can't speak for um, teachers who are not in higher education. So I'm only going to speak for higher education because that's my experience. I think that what people need to understand, whether they're going to an undergraduate program or a graduate program, whether it's a public university or a private university, is that... The university 
is not and should not be about practical skills, technical skills for you to be employed, right? That was that was the job of technical schools, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and practical programs. The university is there for you to learn about knowledge production, to learn critical thinking skills. How do we think about life and about whatever the topic is? How do we gain that knowledge? And how do we take that knowledge and build on it? based on what we have, right? Now, those are actual life and employment skills, mm -hmm. right? Do you want someone who can do the latest, I don't know, whatever technological social media program? Or do you want someone who could think critically about those new programs and build upon that and create something new? Right. I would imagine for, you know, anyone worth any kind of corporate value or whatever would want the latter. Right. Why? Because those are the people that will actually create something new, even for capital. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's what people need to understand, that they're not going to whatever skills particular programs are selling you, and they're literally selling it to people. Those practical skills, those practical skills in the contemporary world will not be as practical a year from now, mm -hmm. two years from now, unless it's really about connecting the dots, thinking independently, thinking creatively, right? actually producing something. And that's what you get in a real liberal arts education, right? The critical rigor to think beyond just everyday life or beyond what you have learned, right? Prior to going to higher education. And is that what gives you pride in being an educator in, in making a difference in students' lives? They help me make a difference. Right? I learn from them. Right? So I think one of the things is yes, right? I am the professor, I am the intellectual um, specializing in particular kind of bodies of knowledge. But that changes every single time I'm in the classroom. I, it could be the same readings, but it's those students' perspectives, right, that allow me to understand the world differently, right? So it, it really is an exchange, right? And that's what actually, you know, keeps me going. And so with that, where do you hope education kind of goes from here? What, what's your hope for students who are going to walk in the classroom um, in the next few days and even in the next few years? We need to step back and rethink education, right? Um, education should not be something that young people go into debt over. Right. Um, if I was in school today, as opposed to all those years ago, I don't think I would have been able to fin. I wouldn't have been able to finish unless I decided to go into debt. Right. 
Um, so we need to rethink education. We need to get our young people to understand that access to knowledge and to building on that knowledge, access to really thinking about the world differently should not have a price tag on it, right? Yeah, so I think in the next few years, what I want to focus on is really kind of rethinking these institutions and how particular knowledges are structured. We usually ask our guests to kind of close us out with um, a little thought or piece of advice for Um, people who are either, um, you know, younger educators or um, even parents who want to support their their kids' teachers. Um, If if you can give a piece of advice, and I know that is two very different groups of people, um, but what would you leave us with as far as um, just supporting education and then uh, sort of going into that field as well? Treat young people the way you would treat your own children. No matter what they look like, no matter how you think their backgrounds might have affected them, um, because that's really about you and what you're projecting, right? right? right. So treat them with the love and respect that you would give your own child. Mm -hmm. It's pretty simple, right? (laughs) But, But you know, in practice, it typically is not that simple, yeah. right? It doesn't matter if you like the person or you don't, right? What matters is you believe in their potential to be, you know, the best human being that they can be. Yeah. Believe in them. Yeah. I want to thank you, Dr. Galente, for coming in and joining us today. This has been a great close to our back-to-school series, and um, we just really have a ton of respect for all educators and for what they do. I know it is not an easy job but in, the, in the least, but, you know, we know that you are helping shape the minds and thought processes for young people, and so that, you know, technology continues to advance, healthcare continues mm-hmm. to advance, and um, overall society continues to advance, because I think as far as we come, there's still a long way to go. I think there's a lot of really great young people who can steer us in that direction. And so we're very thankful for all of our educators who do that. Um, and yeah, we just definitely celebrate you as you begin your school year. And so um, thank you for joining us and thank you for listening to this episode. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you. listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solution Center. As always, feel free to reach out to us on social media with your comments and suggestions. You can email us at solutioncenter at satcltd.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. 
No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to, for use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.